This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been in practice over 20 years and I love what I do. I learn every day from every patient. And basically, I feel like I'm here almost as a conduit between you and the patients I've worked with so that we all can benefit from their work and their change and their wisdom. So welcome and I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going to be talking about anxiety and prescription drug addiction, and we're going to be talking about it in a very, very personal way for me, because I'm going to tell you a story, and that story is about my mom. I've told this story on the internet, but I'm finding sometimes when I actually talk about personal issues that it's harder to do that in person than it is to do it in written form. But I think it's an important story and one that if it only helps one person who's listening, it's worth telling. We're going to go on to discuss a little bit about our culture and all of the writing and focus that's going on right now about the anxiety in our culture. There are all kinds of articles and books and podcasts and hashtags that are about anxiety, and we're going to discuss those a little bit. I'm going to give you some stats on benzodiazepine abuse and opioid abuse. It's interesting. I had a medical doctor who was a patient of mine tell me he had actually been an opioid user and abuser. He said that doctors know that when they prescribe an opioid like hydrocodone or oxycodone, that one out of three patients is going to get addicted to it. But we'll talk more about that later. So what do families do if you have someone in your family who has a prescription drug addiction? How do you do an intervention? And the last is something we do every podcast. I'm going to be reading an email from a listener. This one about making decisions about being a stay-at-home mom or working for a salary mom. So glad you're here, and we'll get started. So first on today's podcast, I'm going to tell you about my mother, Betty. She was a beautiful, talented, very smart woman who never believed any of that. And there were various reasons for her disbelief. Some of them I did understand and some I did not and never will, really. At age 35, she searched for help after her first panic attack. Now, this was back in the 1960s. She didn't call it a panic attack and probably the doctor didn't either. All of a sudden, her heart was pounding. She was perspiring, hands clammy, while trying to quietly attend a ladies' church circle meeting, something she didn't particularly enjoy, but was a duty for any proper Southern wife in the 1960s. After hearing her symptoms, the doctor gave her a sedative. They were given commonly at that time, especially to women. He told her to take it every day. Nerves, he called it, and dismissed her. Thus began my mother's prescription drug addiction. That particular drug was called Equinil. There were others, Fiorinol, Librium. She used those daily for over 30 years. No doctor ever stopped to try to help her understand the root of her anxiety. They handed her more pills. 
It's true that she did not seek therapy. Rather, she ended developing behaviors of an addict. She got prescriptions from different pharmacies and different doctors, all she could do to feed the craving. She was secretly dancing with her own demons until the laws changed and she couldn't do it anymore. I figured out later when I entered graduate school, and by the way, I diagnosed everybody and their dog, including myself there, that my mother had obsessive compulsive tendencies, was a horrible worrier termed general anxiety disorder or diagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder and was not a hoarder per se, but certainly was what she would call a saver. She would buy multiple products all at once, hairspray, deodorant, and then line them up in drawers. She would panic. She didn't have two bottles of the same medicine back when the pharmacies allowed you to do that. They don't do that anymore. One for home, one for her travel bag. She didn't travel much. She was highly perfectionistic. Weeks prior to a party, the dining room table would be elegantly set, silver gleaming. She would check and recheck every detail. She would never eat at those parties, making sure every guest had all they needed. She would get up hours before everyone to put her face on, as she called it. I don't think my dad ever saw my mom without makeup. To her credit, she realized she had a problem. She was in her late 60s and could no longer metabolize the medication. She was irritable, acting irrationally, driving erratically. I remember a conversation we had when she decided that she would go for help. It was the last one we would ever have where she seemed emotionally present. She got off the meds. It took several months. But my mom disappeared. Without the mix of sedatives, painkillers, and benzodiazepines, Betty was no longer Betty. She was a shell of herself. She'd aged 20 years. There was evidence of neurological damage. Whether or not that occurred independently of the multiple medications she used, we'll actually never know. For most of the day, she remained almost mute. She would speak when spoken to, smile only when something inside of her remembered that that was the socially appropriate thing to do. She walked hesitatingly, and as the years went by, almost like she had Parkinson's. Dependence on a drug is more than physiological. My mother had forgotten how to live life without it. I might catch a glimpse of her old self if I called at just the right time, around 7.30 at night. Her rituals for the day would be over. She would ask a question or two. There would be a slight lilt in her voice. Maybe she might even laugh. It was welcome but painful to hear because I knew it would be gone. She lived that way the last 15 years of her life. We live in a culture glorifying escape. My mother's world was not glorious. She told me once, in that halting, breathy voice that became all I would hear in her last years, I wish I had known what I was doing to myself. You've heard her story. She would want you to know that there's another way. And to my mother, whether you knew it or not, you were beautiful and talented and smart. I missed you then. And I miss you now. So I wrote that story about my mom about three years ago. And people wrote to me saying what wonderful memories they had of her, but they obviously had no clue that she had a drug addiction. <laughs> they even said they thought that she'd be proud of me for writing the story. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm not so sure about that. I think my mother probably would have preferred that I did not write it. But she did in the toward the end certainly recognize that if she had known, she would never have used these drugs. That was my mom, but it could be your mom. It could be you. 
actually anxiety has been the prominent mental illness in the United States for quite a while, but now there's even more focus on it. And research indicates that even more people are developing some form of anxiety. In fact, in a wonderful New York Times recent article, which is named Prozac Nation is now the United States of Xanax. Alex Williams talks about the myriad of ways that anxiety conversations are popping up in our culture. That's a good thing, mind you, because people are actually revealing their anxiety and getting help. He featured in that article a friend of mine named Sarah Fader, F-A-D-E-R, She started Stigma Fighters, which is a website telling the stories of people with mental illness. And just recently, she tweeted, I don't hear from my friend for a day. My thought, they don't want to be my friend anymore. And the hashtag was, this is what anxiety feels like. Well, that hashtag was retweeted thousands of times. It's just an indication how much anxiety is so much a part of our culture now. For example, Lena Dunham, who produces and acts in the TV show Girls, has admitted having high anxiety since she was four years old. There's a new podcast that I want to listen to. I just read about it. It's called Generation Anxiety. It's aimed at millennials, and it's to help millennials with their problems with anxiety. There are new terms like quarter-life crisis and FOMO, fear of missing out, which I did an episode on uh, 23. Episode 23 is on FOMO. I remember my 22-year-old son now, even in the sixth grade, saying, Mom, I've got to do well on the Duke tip, and I've got to do well on the ACT, and I've got to do well in my AP classes, or I won't make it to college. He was worrying about that in the sixth grade, and that was not coming from us, to my knowledge. So it's really prevalent, and perhaps you are suffering with it, or someone you love suffers with it as well. But sadly... What are doctors doing about it? Medical doctors. Now, I need to make very clear, I'm a psychologist, not a medical doctor. But what many do is medicate and medicate and medicate. And now the estimated non-medical use of prescription drugs in the United States, released back in 2010, was 2.4 million. That's non-medical use. So you can only imagine how many prescriptions are given out for opioids and benzodiazepines and major tranquilizers. There's a trend for that to be curtailed, thank goodness, and facts like the following are helping that. One of the things that I wouldn't say I feel guilty about necessarily, but certainly I have pain about, is the fact that I saw my mother taking pills. It was just part of our culture. It's what my mother did. I didn't think anything about it. I don't think my father did either. Now, that's stupidity, (laughs) ignorance, but it's also the fact that they were prescriptions. So I trusted that they were given and prescribed accurately and fairly and in the right way. To defend doctors from back then, perhaps they didn't know what we know now, but certainly my mom's life suffered because of it. As I said in my story, I learned in graduate school just what these were, and I remember calling my mom and saying, Mother, do you realize what you're taking? And again, as I said a few minutes ago, she said, Well, but they're they're prescription. What she was hiding was the behavior about seeking the drugs herself. She couldn't help it. What I do wish we had done earlier was what we finally did in her 60s. We had an intervention 
Now, we didn't all get in the same room with my mom and surround her and say, okay, Betty or mom, you only have one option, and that is to go into treatment. She actually made that decision herself after several family members, including me, talked with her very seriously about what was going on and the impact it was having on the rest of us. My mother found her courage and went, but there are many people whose families do interventions and they simply walk out of the room or they get angry or they start yelling at their family saying, you don't understand. It's a very difficult problem in a family. I have included a link on intervention and how to actually go about an intervention very specifically in the show notes. That's more of a, a podcast topic in and of itself, but basically it's what I just described. It's when a family confronts the drug user, the alcoholic, and says, we can't enable you anymore. We can't buy your drugs. We can't cover for you. I'm sure there are many people in Al-Anon who can give you advice about interventions as well if you want to go to an Al-Anon meeting. And, and of course, Al-Anon is the partner group to AA for people with alcohol addiction. It's for the family members. And there are many people who benefit greatly from Al-Anon or Narconon, which is the same organization except it's for narcotics. Adult Children of Alcoholics also has regular meetings in many, many communities through the United States, and they are also a wonderful support group. You can learn a lot about what it's like to have an alcoholic as a parent and how it may have affected you. To put some closure on the story about my mom, I will share with you that watching her go through those 15 years was very difficult, and certainly I didn't handle it in a way that sometimes I'm proud of. I, I did okay, but I would get angry. I would then be very patient and work with her, but as I saw her slipping away and disappearing from anyone that I had known before, it was very difficult to work through my own emotions. I got into therapy for that, not that that was a new thing, and that was very helpful. But when she died in 2007, people would come up to us and say, gosh, I'm so sorry about your mom. And my brothers and I would look at each other and think to ourselves, our mom died a long time ago. I don't want you to be in that position as a person. I don't want you to love someone who has a prescription drug addiction and watch them disappear. I hope that my mom's story and more information about prescription drug addiction will help you and your family. And now we've got an email from a listener. I love it that so many people are sending me emails. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. That's really long. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I love getting to know who you are and learning more about you. This listener writes, I've been listening to your podcast and I'm so thankful for your insight and directives in mental health. I have a question for you, but I'll give you a little background first. I'll try to keep it brief. We are a military family and will be transferring overseas for the first time in less than a month. We have three young children. I'm 34 years old and a registered nurse with a background in oncology. I've struggled with bouts of depression throughout my life, including postpartum depression after the birth of my third baby. I've been really trying to learn more about myself and why I am the way I am, why I relate to the world the way I do. I want to be healthy in my responses, thoughts, and feelings. I've made what I believe to be big strides lately, 
But what I need help with right now is getting my thinking straightened out about work. I'm struggling now with thoughts of wanting to go back to school. I talk about it constantly, and I feel internal pressure to make it happen, but I can't decide what path to choose. I love nursing, but when I think about the future, all I know for certain is I want to be present and available for my family. So the questions that probably have obvious answers, which they're not really obvious, but I can't work out are, is it okay to be a working mom? Can I be there for my kids without screwing them up if I'm taking that time away to be at work? Will I miss out on the life I want if I'm not available at the drop of a hat for my people? What if I choose to be a nurse educator like I think I want, but then miss out because I could have been a nurse practitioner and made more money, had more prestige, done the hard thing? I realize many of these questions are privileged and may seem frivolous. I want you to know how grateful I would be for your help untangling my mind in this matter. I feel like it's beginning to make me unhealthy. Thank you so much. I thought that email had a lot of different levels, and so that's why I wanted to try to answer it. So here's my answer. I'm so glad you reached out. Rather than answering your questions directly, maybe it would be helpful for me to let you know a process that I suggest to many when making decisions. We all do the pros and cons thing. First, you make a list of all the decisions you could make, and then you figure out what you'll enjoy about each choice and what might be hard about each choice, what might be a loss of some kind. But I believe there's a third column that to me is the most important. Here we go. How will I tolerate or cope with the loss of each choice? You'll always be enjoying what you gain. But if you don't know how you tolerate the loss, maybe it's not a great choice to make. Anticipating how you would handle the change or the loss, knowing what you would do to handle it, is vital. Because all changes involve both gain and loss. For example, in your own life, being a nurse practitioner might make more money. So how would you cope with not getting to teach? What can you imagine saying or doing to help you think, well, I would have loved teaching, but I can grieve that. Or vice versa, how would you cope with not taking home a larger salary? You imagine yourself in those situations, you anticipate the situation, and then you work it out in your own mind. Again, if you can't come up with something that you can say, well, sure, I would, I would do this to make that better, or if I don't go back to school now, maybe I'd reconsider in two years. You come up with ways you would very pragmatically handle the loss. I hope that makes sense. Then I continue with my email. The other thing, if being a working mom is a bad thing, then I'm out of luck. I think it was Gloria Steinem who said, women can have it all, just not all at one time. (laughs) Realize you're a good mom because you're asking yourself these questions. Please don't let your anxiety over making the right choice sabotage your moving in one direction or another. Good luck to you. As I said before, I've had more and more people emailing me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and I love it. I want to know who you are. I want to know your stories. I want to know what you'd like to hear about. I've been surprised sometimes how some podcasts have done well that I didn't know if they would, and others that I thought, oh, this is a sure fit. 
eh, not many people have listened. So I need to get to know you. I want to know what you'd like to hear, what would mean something to you, what would make a difference in your life. As a psychologist, I've been working in a fairly small town, so I've had a fair amount of experience in diverse kinds of things, certainly a lot of trauma. I've done a lot of relationship work, divorce, anxiety. Some of the things I don't know a lot about are attention deficit disorder and learning disabilities. But I'd welcome your contact, and I'll answer you too. And by the way, it's confidential. My Website where I blog weekly is drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. If you listen on Stitchers or iTunes, I'd so appreciate it if you'd give me a rating and a review. A rating takes a second. <laughs> a review, maybe five minutes. It's not really hard. You can use a nickname. So if you don't want to be recognized, you won't be. But I'd so appreciate that. That really motivates me to tell you the truth. And of course, subscribe. You can do that on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can subscribe on my website, drmargaretrutherford.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.